0: Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are almost finished with this series on the Beatitudes. Today we'll be talking about Blessed are the Peacemakers, verse 9. And then next Sunday will be verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then we will be finished, at which point we will return to the Psalms for a time and after that, well, we're still, we're still working on what comes after that. Um, but if you'll join me in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we will start there once again. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. So by way of review, you might recall that the first three Beatitudes are brought about by an internal work of the Holy Spirit, and they start where the Christian life itself must start, which is a recognition of your own poverty of spirit and your need. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Once you realize your sin, the proper response is to mourn over it, to be brokenhearted over the state of of your sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn. This cultivates a certain attitude within the heart. Uh, where you are enabled to be courageous before men because you're forgiven, right? They've got nothing on you, so to speak, and total humility and and smallness before God because you recognize not only is, again, God is in the heavens, He does all He pleases. This is the Almighty into whose presence we come, not presumptuously, but this is the God who's forgiven you. And so, as you receive that forgiveness, it does cultivate in your heart a deep desire and hunger for righteousness. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness, all right? So you have these three things, these three streams, if you will, going into this, this river, let's say. These three streams of recognition of poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness before God and before men. And th- then comes into this, this river, we might say, which is the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness. What then flows out on the other side is how you act toward other people, not simply how you treat them, but but it begins to cultivate a certain disposition in your thoughts, in your your will, and in your actions. Uh, One of those being mercy. Right? Blessed are and, and so blessed are the merciful acting that way toward our fellow men keeping in mind right the three the three lines that float into our river and now this is mercy is what's flowing out of it what else is flowing out of it purity of heart. Which as we talked about last Sunday, purity of heart is to will one thing. It's, it's uh, not having a divided heart as James talks about, but a single heart that desires the things of God. You can see how it's related then to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And today, the third bit that flows out of this river, if, I, if you'll follow me there with this, with this picture, is the desire to be a peacemaker, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As with all the Beatitudes, you have the blessing and then the motivation given to pursue it. The idea is, blessed are the peacemakers, and let's just say, for the sake of argument, you think, I'd much rather start a good fight. What's the good of being a peacemaker? For they shall be called sons of God. All right? And we're going to talk about what that means. I want to start by pointing out that this is the only place where this word shows up in the New Testament, peacemaker. On the other hand, and so, and so, that makes a discussion of the term difficult. It's only used this time in the New Testament, and Jesus doesn't give a whole lot of extended reflection on what the term means. But I do think that's probably intentional. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who would have been very familiar with the concept of shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace, but it carries with it the idea of peace in every sphere of life, if you can put up the next one, Jeremiah, peace in every sphere of life, wholeness, completeness, uh, uh, peace in every uh, part of life or sector of life, you might say. So yes, it's true when we talk about peace on earth, that does include the cessation of war, but it's also peace in the family, peace in the household, peace in your friendships, Peace in your workplaces. Peace is the absence of anxiety and the experience of godly contentment. Peace in all of our relationships. And of course, peace with God. Which we would identify most fundamentally, of course, as forgiveness and salvation. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation gives us a good sense of this hard reality, that at the root of all the tension and discomfort and pain and suffering in this world, and there's plenty of it, lies this problem, a lack of peace, a lack of shalom. Everyone experiences it. Every presidential candidate promises to make it go away. Every campaign can be re- reduced down to what is, what is between you and shalom, I'll bring it to you. What is keeping you from shalom? I'll take care of it. We can see this problem itself in Genesis 3, can't we? When Adam and Eve obeyed the serpent's command to take and eat, they they lost shalom. Not just with God, but with the earth, right? We're told that the ground will, will produce thorns and thistles. That was the curse. And that only by then hard labor will the earth be forced to cooperate with humanity. Furthermore, Adam and Eve lost shalom with each other. First thing they do is hide, because they're ashamed. Next thing they do is blame each other, because they're afraid. And so we're told that the God-designed harmony of marriage is tarnished, broken by this fall, and that they will both attempt to oppress and rule over each other. Peace, broken, shalom, Loss. The result is that this peace, this shalom, the very thing we're all craving is what St. Augustine was getting at when he said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Put another way, if you are alive, if you have a pulse, you are in some sort of conflict. But that doesn't quite cover it. It's more like if you're alive, you're at war. You're either at war with sin and therefore at peace with God or you're at peace with your sin and therefore at war with God. Let's read our text again. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. What we have here is this I mean picture of Jesus pronouncing a blessing on those who bring to the world what the world is really after. Peace. Shalom. The problem, though, is we all have this struggle in common. We're all looking for peace, and so we're all tempted to use any number of of methods, invented methods, you might say, to find it. The problem with so many of our failed attempts at peacemaking in this world can be summarized in one sentence, and that is we try to be peacekeepers rather than peacemakers. I forgot to put it on slide. But we try to be peacekeepers rather than peace makers. In other words, we're trying to assemble or sometimes reassemble peace by keeping or preserving or protecting a pathetic reflection of the shalom that we're actually after. Rather than letting our notions of peace be remade by Jesus, recreated if you like, we come up with false definitions. And again, this often looks like the kind of idolatry that we've talked about before, right? If I only had X, then I would have shalom. If I could only have this one thing, this one relationship, uh, if, if if my life circumstances could only be arranged in such a way, then I would finally have peace. When we think about the differences between peacemaking and peacekeeping, to try to make this distinction for you, I'm going to use a sermon illustration that i don't often use at least a source of illustrations and that is the book trilogy the hunger games where there's this sort of stormtrooper police force and they're called the peacekeepers they end up being absolutely abusive and horrible to all the citizens but they're keeping peace right well it's actually that's actually a pretty good commentary on how far a culture can get from shalom and still call it peace because the greatest, I mean, what's interesting about the Hunger Games, I just noted in passing, is that the great ideal of the whole story is survival. Right? W- w- that's how you know the good guys won in the end, because they're still breathing. <laughs> they're still standing. And, and even when you talk to people uh, just in, in life, you might hear that, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm surviving, right? That's not shalom at all. Okay? Shalom is not mere survival. Shalom is thriving and flourishing as you live out love and obedience to God. But in a world shaped by Darwin and Darwinian evolution, the only virtue Darwin can give you is survival, right? Survival of the fittest is as close as Darwin can get to a virtue. But peace and shalom is more than survival. Survival. So why, why did I bring that up? Peacekeepers, peacekeepers, uh, right? So, so the irony of peacekeepers in the Hunger Games is that they're enforcing peace at the end of a gun. It's a definition of peace that amounts to the triumph of the will of the overlords, which is not peace at all. It's quiet, but it's not peace, right? We talk about peace and quiet. What they're establishing in that story is quiet, but not peace. At the other end of the spectrum is, is a concept of peacekeeping that is just as can be just as destructive, but a lot of times far less obvious. And that is peace by appeasement, also called passive peace or peace at any price. When you'd rather give someone whatever they want, rather than continue to sort out a conflict with them, you sweep things under the rug. This happens a lot of time in marriages. When uh, when Marissa and I were engaged, we ended up finding this uh, kind of adorable little children's story that, that, is, that functions as a parable um, and it's about, it's about a dragon that finds its way into a house and, and a little boy takes, takes the dragon as a pet and, uh, and he tells his mother about it and his mother's response is there's no such thing as dragons and every time she says that the dragon gets a little bigger, right? Some of you are following me. Uh, and, and the story carries on and carries on until, you know, toward about midway through, the dragon is literally the size of the house, and he picks up the house and runs off with it. And then there's this scene of dad coming home and driving down the road, trying to chase after his own house as the dragon's carrying it off, and mother's yelling out the window, there's no such thing as dragons, right? Right? <laughs> And Finally, when they admit there's a dragon, it starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and we get to the end, and the boy says, what happened? Why did that happen? And, and, uh, and mother said, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he just needed to be noticed, right? And so it's, it's this sort of parable for conflict that this dragon can hide under all the tables of your house, and if you continue not to acknowledge it and not to acknowledge it and not to acknowledge it, it can get so big that it takes your whole house and family away, it also makes communication about it a lot easier. So if there's something hiding under the rug and or Marissa perceives it, or I do, just in daily conversation as a married couple, we can say, I think there's a dragon in the living room. <laughs> really, which is a lot easier than saying, we need to talk, right? That terrifies people. But if you say, I, th- I think there's a dragon in the kitchen that we need to talk about. Oh, okay, all right, that sounds a lot, that sounds a lot easier. Let's, we, can, we can fight the dragon together, right? So there's, there's a little free marriage advice for you. So peace at any price, peace by appeasement, is when you ignore the dragon, right? You don't talk about it, and it just keeps getting bigger. It's, it's another kind of peacekeeping rather than peacemaking. And, and lots of relationships, um, uh, marriage relationships, parent-child relationships are hurting because the expectation is developed that, that peace and quiet has to be kept at any price. The problem with this kind of passive peacekeeping is that it kind of looks like humility sometimes, because right? we're not making a fuss. But what happens when we don't deal with each other in the relational level? Well, either we continue to sustain and endorse sinful patterns because we refuse to address them, or we're helping ourselves and others to cultivate bitterness in the heart. This is why conflict resolution is actually one of the most, I think, important aspects, important priorities in the Christian life. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18 and how there's a Christian responsibility to pursue conflict resolution when it crops up. That doesn't mean you have to like conflict, okay? Most people don't like conflict. But hating conflict doesn't remove the responsibility to pursue resolution where it's needed. If you're curious, there's a very good and very short book on this, you can read it, you can knock it out this afternoon, it's called Resolving Everyday Conflict, we actually have it in the, the book repository down the hall, I think it's, if you look at your worship guide uh, in front of you in the pew, there's a there's a picture of it on the back, it's a, a recommended book of, of the month or whatever, I didn't do that intentionally actually, it just fits. But in that book, there's great stuff like how to forgive others, uh, how to have the hard conversations, how to do biblical confrontation, lots of stuff that most of us need help doing and most of us have not been shown how to do. Uh, There's even a whole section on the importance of looking someone in the eye and saying the words, will you forgive me or I forgive you, which is different from uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's different. I, I forgive you is very different from it's fine. So those are are things that a lot of us have forgotten how to do in our communication. And it's why a lot of peace at any price happens and can be sustained over years. We we don't deal with the need to give or to receive forgiveness. Now, what's interesting about both things that I've put before you, what I might call pushy peacekeeping and passive peacekeeping, is that they're both variations on the same error. Okay? Okay. Both see peace primarily as a set of circumstances, whereas biblically, the lack of shalom is most fundamentally not a problem with our environment. It's a problem in our hearts, and that's why attempts at peacekeeping fall short of a biblical vision of shalom. They address the symptoms, but not the real problem. We've all heard of peace and quiet, and for good reason. We think of peacefulness as a state of quiet. But expressions can kind of take on a life of their own. I think this one has. It starts to, to, to subtly put the idea in our minds, n- not so much just that like peace and quiet are harmonious, but that peace is quiet, that, that if conflict is out of sight, it must also be out of existence. The problem with that idea is that it's just not shalom. It forgets that people in God's kingdom are not ones without longings or yearnings or desires. In fact, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah? And these paltry ideas of peace, whether again like peace by violence or peace by appeasement, is is peace minus righteousness. Okay? And and furthermore, peace by appeasement as opposed to shalom just because it nurtures the idea that peace doesn't cost you anything. Right? And if anything, if anything should, you know, Christians should dismiss from their minds, it's the idea that peace peace is not costly, right? Think of Jesus and the cross. Peace came to us at immense cost. Sinclair Ferguson compared this idea to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of cheap grace. So, So Bonhoeffer described cheap grace as grace that doesn't cost anything. Ferguson said, if that's cheap grace, then this idea of peace as appeasement is cheap peace. And, and the reality is that being a peacemaker in a Genesis 3 world is going to cost us something. It's why, by the way, in our membership vows, in our membership vows, you inc- we include the promise to uphold the peace of the church. Do you know that? If you're, if you're a member of this church, you made a promise at some point And it included the promise to to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church, okay? The reason why we have you say that is because in our flesh, we're not naturally peacemakers. Apart from God's work in our hearts, we will define peace as the establishment of what I want. And where all of you recognize that I'm right. (laughs) And so we begin to see that being a peacemaker in God's kingdom requires that we are transformed by the gospel of Jesus, the, the poor in spirit, mourning over sin, and, and so on. What does all that do to you? Well, it draws you out of yourself, breaks your heart over sin. But this time, it's not, it's not broken, again, just by, by spiritual poverty, but it's broken by the poverty of others around you, which provokes mercy, merciful, and, and the desire to be pure and hearted, so on. And so let's go back to the text again. I feel I've, I've been away from it for far too long. Um, blessed are the pure, excuse me, <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For they shall be called sons of God. So what does that mean? ESV, New King James reads sons of God. Some other English translations have children of God. I actually want to start by making an appeal for why we ought to read it as sons of God. And that shouldn't bother anybody. There are two reasons. First, in the ancient world, sons received the larger portion of the inheritance. So something significant is is being communicated when we are all called sons and it is not that women cease to exist. The, the, the firstborn son was the one who received the greater inheritance. So when the Bible uses the language of sonship to speak of the church, it's not because God is declaring all of us male. It is because God is declaring that we are all recipients now of the highest sort of inheritance. That there's no longer distinctions in God's kingdom concerning, say, value or usefulness or godliness or grace because we've all been made sons. We've all been given the greater portion. The second reason is that in the ancient world, a son was a primary caretaker of, of his parents. Now, not only primary caretaker, but also primary imitator in, uh, in kind of the work and field and vocation of his father. Now, that, to us, that's kind of odd. In fact, just, just for fun, raise your hand if you are in the same line of work as your uh, father, men and 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 women, if you're in the same line of work as your mother, raise your hand if that describes you. Okay, precious few. Yeah, that's that's kind of the situation in our in our culture and in our moment. Uh, I was expecting a minority. That's different from Jesus's day, where it was taken for granted that you would imitate the the work and the vocation of your parents that's because in the ancient world you didn't just inherit DNA, inherit dna from your parents you inherited training in something you inherited a skill set i mean if your dad was a carpenter you were a carpenter if your dad was a baker you were a baker if your dad's name was gibson or taylor you made guitars okay if your dad was a farmer he taught you how to do irrigation and all that sort of thing when to plant seeds how to read the weather how to build a decent fence and so on and so on occasion there are places in the bible where some poor idiot is identified as a son of Be- son of belial sorry which translates son of worthlessness now that doesn't mean his parents were mr and mrs worthless right Rather, it's saying that his character is so worthless, so absolutely worthless, worthless, the only decent explanation is that he did, in fact, come from the worthless household. And so we have this statement from Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Why will peacemakers be called sons of God? Well, because God himself is the peacemaker who's been teaching his sons how to do it. See? He's been teaching his sons how to adopt this vocation. If we live our lives in order to see shalom growing in our world, in our our city, in our state, and so on, we are acting like our father, revealing that we are, so to speak, chips off the old block. Being a peacemaker then means imitating Jesus, the great peacemaker. Now some of you, if you know your Bibles, might be thinking there is a considerable flaw in my argument. I want to address it briefly. You might be thinking of Matthew chapter 10, if we can go there now, verse 34, where Jesus said that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and then he even talks about the division within households and so on. The answer is, is yes, Jesus did say that. Did not come to bring peace but a sword, but a contrast like that, peace versus sword means you have to immediately ask what's being taught here the contrast itself clarifies what Jesus is talking about that is peace as limited to the absence of struggle okay not not peace but a sword in other words in other words i'm saying jesus christ came to bring peace but it's got a sword attached to it okay it's not swordless peace you might say history has shown that in the case of nations, actually, prolonged peace tends to be the result of war. I don't like it any more than you do. But sometimes biblical peace doesn't look like peace and quiet. That's why both pushy peacekeeping and passive peacekeeping aren't shalom. They have the appearance. But sometimes biblical peacemaking brings about enormous conflict within families, within friendships. When you have to to make peace not with your sin but with your God when Christians claim claim that peace cannot be found in the endless pursuit of identity that plagues our world today well there's going to be war over that when Christians call husbands and wives to peculiar responsibilities and work there's going to be war over that and so peace means war (laughs) peace with God means war over sin Is that a contradiction? Well, ask Jesus. Ask Jesus, our Prince of Peace, who came to reconcile us to God and paid for that proclamation with his life because my peace comes only at the cost of his blood and not my own. And it's his work that pushes me to long for God's shalom in the world. It's Jesus who breaks my heart when I see Christians captive to sin, gossiping and belittling and holding on to bitterness. It's Jesus who will work in your heart so you long for his peace in your home and in your church and in your world and in your workplace and as you seek to be a peacemaker rather than a peacekeeper. So maybe you're thinking, I've tried that and it didn't work. Conflict resolution didn't work. Tensions have remained in the home for years. What are you going to do with that? I've tried to make reconciliation. I've tried to let... A gentle answer, turn away wrath, but still no peace. What do I do then? It's part of the reason that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I'm going to read that again. If it is possible, qualifier number one. As much as it depends on you, qualifier number two be at peace with all men so you hear your responsibility and then you hear Paul sort of taking account of the reality that sometimes others will not permit peace that's a that's a comforting and an insightful verse if it's possible so far as it depends on you and that's that's where both peace by violence and peace by appeasement go wrong they preach a different peace One says, it's always necessary. and always depends on me, so I better be at peace with everyone. I better make sure they know it, make it happen right now. That's why meekness comes before peacemaking. But this is a peace that we've been given in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us about the nature of our need for peace. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is God's prescription and description of our state before him apart from the grace and forgiveness of jesus what we are then told is that christ's death ephesians 5 has secured our redemption oh that's actually the wrong verse but it's a lovely verse husbands love your wives as christ loved the church it still works and gave himself up for her this is what jesus has done right he's given himself up for his people the church He's communicated this gift to them. And by that gift and by his blood and by that forgiveness, we have peace. And so what sets us apart then from others in the world? Quite simply, our faith. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so what sets us apart then is faith in God jesus the one who promises and delivers on his promise of peace and those who have faith this is so good those who have faith have the forgiveness of their sins and therefore they have peace with god romans chapter 5 verse 1 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ this is the peace that that, that steadies everything. It is the source of all the other shalom, right? Without this, you don't get any other kinds of shalom. This is what enables us to pursue peace with a kind of reckless abandon. It's, It is, yes, it's an internal peace. It just doesn't stay inside. It's an internal peace, the forgiveness of our sins, that works itself out into peacemaking with others. It has to, it has to. So, so in, in closing, how do we seek to be peacemakers in this world? There are just sort of three ways for it I'm going to offer to you. It's going to sound a little advice but it's all from Scripture. Just kind of three ways that you can focus your strength and energy this week as you think about blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, all right? And so wanting to pursue that peace, what does that look like practically? First of all, it looks like making war... On your pride okay making war on your pride which is really key in conflict resolution really key in conflict resolution conflict resolution doesn't mean that uh, uh, seeking to resolve a conflict doesn't mean you own everything as your fault right uh, in a pastoral capacity I've done conflict resolution for, for some of you who have been in the midst of conflict, and look, you know, sometimes it's been really successful, and we're like, man, this is just, this is just the sweet wine that the Lord has given us. We're back in fellowship. Everything's great, and sometimes it's a lot more complicated than that, all right? You know, I, I can't promise that if, that if you and I and whoever else is involved sit down to do conflict resolution, that it's all going to go splendidly. Here's what I can promise you. It is not 100% one person's fault. In every conflict that I've mediated, I've yet to find one where it's not sinners on both sides responsible for something, okay? Now, maybe you're in the midst of a conflict and it is 98% the other person's fault. I'm willing to counsel that. Like, let, let's go ahead and work with that for a second. 98%, okay? You own the 2% like it's as big as the 100 Right, so just and 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 you 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 own it like it's two percent of sin, right? Not like it's two percent, no big deal compared to you, right? So, so con- seeking to do conflict resolution doesn't mean that um, that that we that we pretend like righteousness isn't a thing, or that we in, or that we over carelessly overlook sin in such a way as to enable it to continue. No, but it, it does mean that we understand that when two sinners come to do conflict resolution, that's what they are. It's two sinners and there's gonna be sin on both sides. I remember I had a, uh, a, a pastor when I was in college who said whenever somebody would come to him talking about a conflict, he said he would reach into his pocket and he would twirl a coin between his thumb and his index finger just to remind himself, there are two sides to this story. <laughs> right, a, use, a useful tactic. So first we have to make war on our pride, okay? It, it, it takes humility to engage in conflict resolution. Ownership, ownership both of where you've done wrong and how that wrong has affected somebody else. Right? Those are two important parts. And, and sometimes we leave one out. Right? This is, so, so the first step is like what I did was wrong or, or sinful or selfish or whatever, whatever adjective needs to be in play. And then here's what it did to you. Okay? This is turning into a sermon on how to work through conflict resolution. We don't necessarily have time for all that this morning, but at least those first two steps are important. Restitution can also be important. How can I make this right? And things like that. So, so, so making war on pride, that, that's really just being poor in spirit, right? Only people changed by the gift of peace, of the peace of Christ, will be able to be peacemakers in the world. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-five has uh, some helpful words about this in terms of the function of pride here. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Right? So, so not seeking to get your own way, but, but seeking to see the Lord's way done, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity, right? Second, we have to forgive sin. That is, that's the big banner that waves over most conflict resolution, is it's just being ready to forgive sin. And what I don't think we talk about often enough, dear saints, is how absolutely scandalous the Christian doctrine of forgiveness is, right? So when Jesus says, I tell you you not seven times do you forgive your brother, but 70 times seven, right? So you can go ahead and and count that up if you want good luck on tracking that over the long haul. The idea is that you do lose count and then you do keep on forgiving. And again, there are situations where where you're thinking, man, if I I just let this go and pretend it doesn't matter and enable future saying that's gonna not be good, yeah. Probably you need some wisdom there. Come and talk to an elder, myself or another elder, on how to navigate hard situations like that, okay? However, also keep in mind, it is not forgiveness that pushes people to continue in sin. It is shame and guilt, lingering shame and guilt that makes the cycle of sin repetitive, not forgiveness. Forgiveness sets people free, right? So we must forgive sin. Love covers a multitude of sins and peacemakers will seek to do this often. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It is astonishing that every time you pray, you ask God to forgive you only to the extent that you forgive others. I just, I just kind of wanted to let a moment of silence hang so you could think about that. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to set up the accounts such that we be forgiven only to the extent that we forgive. There you go. Finally, pursue conflict resolution. Pursue it. It's not an option. Wherever, wherever it has, happens in our life, wherever we, we find it, lingering dragons under the living room carpet or, or whatever, right? Right? We must examine where we remain in conflict and, just, and put it to rest. Now, sometimes this takes work. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out this whole process of, of how to do these things well and wisely. If your brother sins against you, be mad at him for a long time and never bring it up again. Don't. Oh, no, sorry. Apologies. That's not what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother okay? It's between the two of you, so keep it that way and deal with it that way. And if you are desiring to pursue resolution, and he throws it back in your face, Jesus goes on to say, go and get somebody else, preferably the person who's closest to the conflict that you can find. And if he refuses to listen to them, then take it to the church. I would understand that as saying, take it to your elders who can help you to navigate that together. Um, And so this is, this is, how we do this. Jesus has given us a prescription. And what's really, really cool, and again, I think doesn't get talked about enough, that's right after Jesus prescribes this process for conflict resolution. Do you know what he says? It, many of you are familiar with this verse. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, right? So you, you got your brother sins against you, go and tell him. One, two. And if he doesn't listen, Go and get a third person. That's three. For wherever two or three are gathered, I'm going to add parenthetically, to do this hard labor of conflict resolution, there I am in the midst of them. Right. I'm not saying the verse can't be used for anything else. I'm saying most fundamentally, it's Jesus promising to be in the room with you while you do this thing because it's really hard. And you need that encouragement just like I do. So, This is what's put before us. To be people who receive the peace of God by the blood of Jesus, by the forgiveness of our sins. To rejoice in that together. It's part of why we gather on Sunday morning. And then to go and be peacemakers in our world, extending that same forgiveness to our neighbors. And the good news is that blessed, rejoicing, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God their Father. Let's pray. And so our Father, you who have made peace By the blood of Jesus, your Son, we ask that you would form and shape us into peacemakers worthy of the name. Indeed, that we would be called sons of God because we're simply resembling our Father. All this to the glory of Jesus, the great peacemaker, who is bringing his peace into this world more and more by, yes, putting his enemies under his feet. And so this is a peace that moves forward, an advancing peace that is spreading all over the world. What a joy it is to participate in it, to proclaim it, and to rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen.